0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us. On today's episode, I would love you to take a moment and pause. Think about what are you grateful for. The science stacks up. Gratitude makes a huge impact on our mental health and Dr. Thry, a clinical psychologist on hand to explain why. A doctor of a different kind, consultant urologist Dr. Omar Darwish was with us as we talked about men's health, especially relating to urological issues, answering your questions. And we were taking a little moment to break your self-limiting beliefs. Kai Simmons on hand to talk about what they are and why they happen. Plus, We're in conversation with environmentalist, philosopher and author, Mark Balabon, ahead of his school visit. How can literature help the planet? It is the Psychology Hour and we're talking gratitude because gratitude really is good for you. According to the data, giving and receiving and even witnessing gratitude can improve your well-being, especially during difficult times. It is, of course, Thanksgiving around the corner and I feel like we need gratitude more than ever right now. Dr. Theraya, clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic, joins us to unpack the why and offer up some ideas on the how. You know, I want to ask you, Dr. T, what are you grateful for today? Um, I'm actually very grateful for health
2: and family. That is, I think that's a daily thing for me, my health
1: and my family's health. And we totally take that kind Mm -hmm. of thing for granted. And it's only when something awful happens when you get a phone call or you have a diagnosis you think my goodness I've just been in this beautiful bubble of ignorance and bliss mm-hmm. and you can be completely blindsided so I think taking a moment to realize that is is huge what right. about what about the
2: little things the little things. I'm grateful I made it a year on time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so am I, for what it's worth. Bit of a squeaky bum moment about 10, 10 minutes ago. I was like, where's Dr. T? But you came in during Rod Stewart. I did. Everything was fine. Mm. So I want to talk about some of the nitty gritty of gratitude because I feel like a bit like, you know, positive activity and mm-hmm. meditation. It's become very commonly used. So I wondered if you could kick things off and maybe explain to us today what exactly gratitude is and why it's considered to be a powerful tool for our mental well-being.
2: Well, you know, it's um, I'm sure English teachers would hate me because it's hard to define what gratitude is without using the word grateful <laughs> in it, in the definition. But essentially what you're doing is you're kind of creating psychologically a downward comparison between you and other people on some level. So,
1: I don't understand what downward comparison is. So,
2: we tend to socially compare quite a bit. So, how am I in, co- in accordance to other people? And so on and so forth. And more often than not, we tend to upward compare. Look at what that person has and I don't have it. And that usually makes us feel quite bad about ourselves. Whereas, when we're talking about downward comparison, this is where we tend to experience sometimes guilt if it's too much, but sometimes we do recognize a sense of gratitude that we're happy that we have something when we recognize that other people don't. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's not about going, feeling superior
2: no no not at all it's really about having that balance where you're just kind of noticing the things that you do have in your life and not taking them for granted
1: what does the science say dr t about what happens in our brain when we're being grateful because i've read especially with children that it's impossible to be stressed or almost kind of tantrum when you're taking a moment to show gratitude? Well, not so much
2: impossible, but it's quite rare because what ends up happening is that when we start to identify things that we're quite, quite grateful for, we tend to build resilience and actual healthy coping strategies. So we tend to learn to look at even difficult situations and have meaning and growth from them. So it's it's some, somewhat similar to individuals who have post-traumatic stress disorder versus, versus post-traumatic growth. So that's the idea of like taking meaning and understanding from even difficult situations. And so with children, the more gratitude they, uh, understand and they really give themselves they tend to see the good in so many different things so it becomes very difficult for them to experience a sense of discomfort and emotional dysregulation mm-hmm. and also it you know brain imaging will show so many positive things when it comes to dopamine um, activation and and really this reduction in electrical activity in the amygdala and the limbic system whereas you're having a far bigger um, or let's say equal um, electrical activity in many different areas of the brain. So everything seems to be regulating in the in the proper way rather than you're very,
1: very activated. So the science stacks up. Dr. Thry with us today. We are talking gratitude. I've had a number of messages. I've had loads of messages about what you're grateful for, which is honestly lovely to hear and hopefully a reminder to anyone who might be struggling to, to grasp for what they're grateful for today. Um, we're going to be talking about I guess, about how to incorporate gratitude into daily life um, and how it does influence our mental health. If you've got any questions relating to the subject of gratitude... Thrive a clinical psychologist with us, we've just been talking about what happens in the brain when we show gratitude, when we take a moment to do it. And I think a lot of people kind of view it a little bit of having a gratitude journal as a bit like we should be meditating every day and it becomes mm-hmm. something on the to-do list that we feel guilty about that we haven't actually done. But in terms of, you know, those neural pathways about the the habit of gratitude can something like a gratitude journal and taking five minutes every day actually make a difference on our mental health? For sure, it really can, and that's all
2: you really need is five minutes. You don't need more than that. And there's a great gratitude journal that I usually recommend to a lot of my clients. Tell me, I'm googling. It, it's actually called the Gratitude Journal. Good, <laughs> very befitting. I'll, I'll remember that. And it's um and it it's basically it has a it has like a grayish um exterior and there are five questions to it. And I really love the way the author has set it up because the the five questions are set up in a way that you do three questions in the morning and then two questions at night. And you can see it because on the page, it's like three questions are in the lighter side of the page and then two questions are in the darker side of the page. And that's all you need to do. And those five things every single day can be more than enough to actually start and end your day in a positive manner but more than more than anything else I love it because I think it's great to look back on on, on bad days Do you
1: want me to tell you what they say? So it's on Amazon sure. I've just found it it's about 39 dirhams if you want to send me the word book I'll send you the link this would be a great gift by the way so your three prompts in the morning are I am grateful for what would make today great Daily affirmations, I am dot, dot, dot. And at the end, as you say, it's a darker colour. It's got a little crescent moon next to it saying three amazing things that happened today. And how could I have made today better? Mm
2: Mm-hmm. And I I, I usually stress, be careful when you're doing gratitude statements. Try to stay away from things like, I'm grateful for my health, although that's exactly what I said when we started, (laughs) or or, I'm grateful for my family. You want to be as specific as possible, or else what will happen is you'll run out of gratitude or things to be grateful for after Mm -hmm. three, four days. So super specific. Very. So instead of I'm grateful for my health, something like I'm grateful for the fact that I have
1: all my limbs. Or for me, like, you know, my eyesight isn't as failing as fast as I thought it would be. Right, But I, I think also taking a moment, I mean, I think everyone's talking about how crazy the traffic are. I, I I drove to the beach in the morning. I was like, I got three green traffic lights in a row. And that's actually something <laughs> to like be a, very grateful for. <laughs> it felt like It felt like a win. Um, so if you want to send me the word book, I will very happily send you um, that. It is on... On Amazon, although I'm sure it's available on on other platforms. It is called the Five Minute Gratitude Journal and it's 49 dirhams. It's currently um, in the sale, which is rather nice. So, love a recommendation from Dr. T. And actually um, helps out with Dana, who's saying, Can you recommend any good self help books or activity books? Are there any books that you recommend on this topic, Thorough?
2: Well, not necessarily self-help books because I'm not a big fan of those in general, but I think this this gratitude journal is very helpful. And if there's anything in specific about um, a topic, for instance, if you're trying to be more grateful about your body, there's a great book written called um, Befriending Your Body. That's a very beautiful book that ta- teaches you how to be grateful for the body that you have um, and certain other topics. I mean, there's so many of those types of books, being grateful for uh, your existence as an individual. There's a book called Welcome Home um, by... I want to say Najwa Zebian. I think. I'm very I bad with names. Don't do you look know me as if I know
1: the answer. Yes. Okay. Do you know what? Maybe we'll put together a little list that we mm. can share. Um, Dr. Thryer with us today. We are going to be answering your questions on struggling with gratitude after half past. But right now, um, hearing what you're grateful for. Marina, what's on your list today? Hi. Um, I think I've got a really long list, to be honest. That's great. But, um, <laughs> the top five, I would say, would be my husband. Um, besides my children, uh, and really loving husband. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. Really appreciate. It. Lovely to hear, and also it gets you in the drawer as well, which is another reason to be grateful. Thank you so much, Marina. We've also got Zena on the line. Zena, what's on your list of things to be grateful for today?
3: Hi, Helen. Um, I think now more than ever, I'm just grateful for my family and the safety we have and the freedom we have. Um, especially in a country like the UAE, Mm -hmm. with everything else, you know, with everything going on in the world, that's what I'm most grateful
1: for. Me too. Me too. Um, It's terrible that it takes, you know, situations such as what's going on for us to realise the really basic things in life. But you're absolutely right. We are very, very blessed. Thank you so much. And having
3: happy, healthy children too. I know you you mentioned touching your kids at night. It's true. At night, definitely. Thank you. Right you.
1: Long may it continue, Zena. Thank you so much. And regular messenger, Randy, how are you?
4: Hi, Helen. I'm good. I'm good.
1: Tell me, what are you grateful for today, Randy?
4: Yeah, I'm thankful for the uh, blessings that I'm receiving and especially for my family who's uh, always uh, being there to support me.
1: Well, Randy, I'm really grateful to you. I love seeing your messages when you message us on the show. So thank you for being a regular listener. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us on Dubai I 103.8. Keep your messages coming in. Um, As I said, not only will it get you into the draw to win a lovely prize, but I think it's really important for us all to share what we're grateful for at this time of year. Thanksgiving just around the corner. Dr. Thry with us. And I've had a number of messages from people who are struggling with gratitude. Um, One from Yasmin here saying, I'm really finding it hard to feel gratitude without an enormous amount of guilt. How can you feel grateful while dealing with guilt We're going to be coming to that and, and no name on this one Saying why can't I be happy I feel ungrateful I am lucky I love my children They're healthy I've got so much gratitude But I'm bad tempered I get weepy and shouty um, The state of the world gets me down What a mess We're going to be talking about How to overcome some of those issues Dr. Thiraya is with us this hour, clinical psychologist at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Um, can we talk about those daily practices? We're just recommending the, the Gratitude Journal. What if journaling's not for you, Thiraya? What are some ways that we can incorporate this and, and ultimately boost our brain health, our mental health and our happiness too, hopefully? Well,
2: a lot of people like prayer. They use prayer as a way to be grateful. Um, a lot of people sometimes will just meditate in the morning or right before they go to bed, remind themselves of what they're grateful for. Uh, you don't really have to journal in the sense that you have to write it down. It's beneficial because it helps with the with the days that you're not feeling so great. Mm-hmm. But just thinking about these things, just, you know um, – you know, looking at things from a completely different perspective. Because when we think of things from a scarcity perspective, instead of an abundance perspective, we tend to have a more negative outlook and a negative lens that we see life through. However, when we start to think of, you know, I actually have this, and I have this, and I have this, and this is not to negate the the feelings of, you know, maybe discomforting feelings that you're going through. It's just to say both can exist at the same time.
1: Are there um, any therapeutic techniques or interventions that complement or can be incorporated to gratitude that you've seen if people are really struggling? For
2: sure. I mean, there are so many different types. Um, Off the top of my head, a lot have to do with writing. So if you're not big on journaling, uh, something like changing the narrative that you usually go with is is very helpful, finding meaning in things. So any any kind of existential type of of therapeutic intervention, Mm -hmm. Um, positive psychology, self affirmations, and most people will think of self affirmations from an I am statement, it doesn't necessarily have to be, it could be I feel I believe I think I grow, I develop. So it, it could be a lot of different different ways of using those I statements. But what you're trying to do is just change the way your
1: language affects the way that you think about the life that you have. For people that are struggling, and I've had a couple of messages on this through, and I think it's just as important to acknowledge that. um, Because a lot of people are feeling very torn, very emotionally deregulated right now. Um, This is from Yasmin saying, I'm finding it really hard to feel gratitude without an enormous amount of guilt right now. The current situation has taken a huge toll on me and I'm finding it hard to feel grateful without collapsing into tears. It's been going on for some time. How can I feel gratitude and deal with guilt? I just want to say you are so far from alone in this. Mm. I think a lot of people are feeling, as I said, this sense of guilt about life going on, the sense of guilt for having a safe home and their family around them and not being in danger and trying to coexist with life going on, but also being respectful to what's happening for other people, the sense of guilt. Is that something you've heard from clients recently?
2: For sure. I mean, definitely in the past uh,
1: easily five weeks,
2: it's been very tough. A lot of people are experiencing collective guilt. They're experiencing empathic distress, a lot of uh, compassion fatigue. It's really exhausting because Although we do recognize, and sometimes this is the unfortunate truth, that life does go on and we still have a life to live, there's just so much of our existence with the world, with humanity, with every pain and suffering that's that's existing. And so that can be very difficult. And sometimes I, I share with my clients and I say, you know, it's understandable that we have this connection to each other. And this is what Jung had talked about when it came to the collective unconscious, that we are all coll- connected to each other in one way or another. I think it's just important to recognize that even though we feel for each other, we also have to feel for ourselves. And so sometimes having that gratitude gives us an opportunity to then build our resilience and our coping strategy in order to be there for others when they when they actually need us.
1: I think that's a really, really wonderful way of putting it. I, re- I really do because it's something a lot of people are struggling to reconcile right now. And that guilt, I think a lot of people think, oh, I feel like a bad person for, mm. for continuing to live or continue to have you know, blessings and, and a good life. But it, it's, it's, it reminds you that you are a, a great person with a great heart mm. and what you do with that. Um, is, is really the most telling thing. So, Tharaya, thank you so much. i um, really grateful that we, we talked about this today. I've um, had some lovely messages. Um, so thank you all for joining the conversation. Tharaya, if anyone is really struggling right now, um, whether it's resources or indeed coming to you, what's the best way of getting in touch?
2: They can call us on our landline or find us on Instagram or visit our website. Thank you. Dr. Tharaya
1: joining us from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. We've got philosopher, environmentalist and author Mark Balabon joining us now. He is in the UAE for school visits ahead of COP28, focusing on the topic of being climate positive. What does that mean? We'll be finding out in his new book, Home, My Life in the Universe, is out now. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time and the insight you're going to be sharing on a very relevant topic right now. Before we unpack what the schools can look forward to and, of course, some advice for those listening today... It's a big question I'm afraid. I'd love you to start by explaining perhaps what you consider to be your life's work and purpose because it feels like it's very much intermingled with what you create.
5: Yes, um, thanks Helen. It's very much characterised by the word climate and it's a word obviously is used a huge amount because of the emergency that we're in but usually when people talk or think about climate they're thinking about the planet they don't necessarily think about themselves. Mm-hmm. And in the story that's in Home, the protagonist, Leah, 14 year old Leah, one of the things that she comes to realize is that how we are with ourselves or the climate in ourselves affects everything around us. So a lot of my life's work is to do, has been up to this point, to do with personal development, growing qualities in yourself, uh, your self view, improving your mental health. and and those aspects and yet somehow the link hasn't quite been made to Mm -hmm. the fact that the way we deal with ourselves and treat ourselves and others has a massive impact on the planet so that's where the climate positive starts to come into it because if you can deal with yourself and feel good about the things that you are doing in your life feeling, feeling proud about who you are what you stand for then all your lifestyle choices are going to be affected mm-hmm. and those in turn will affect how the planet is dealt with.
1: That's such a fresh perspective because we often think about everything being siloed as, as such. But when you start to feel, and you know, forgive me if I'm misinterpreting this, when you start to feel empowered and control of certain areas of our life, that this has this spillover effect into things that might have previously felt unimaginably large or intimidating to address. Can I ask then about that climate positivity? Because I think an awful lot of us feel a bit paralysed and fearful um, about what could and most likely will be lying ahead when it comes to our planet. What do you mean by climate positive, Mark?
5: Well, there's two things, Helen. Firstly, it is actually a scientific term, climate positive. And what, what it essentially means is going one step further than net zero. In other words, rather than maintaining the status quo in terms of levels of pollution and greenhouse gases and so on, it means actually doing things that are going to reduce the build-up of greenhouse gases and make a reduction, particularly in atmospheric pollution, but also in seas and, and so on. So actually, year on year, you, you're reducing the amount of pollution and therefore improving health and quality of life and so on. So it's going one step further than the sort of banners of let's all go net zero. Mm -hmm. But the other side of it is, and this is really where it begins, and that's why one of the reasons I've called my book Home is starting with yourself. So, for example, when I'm doing talks or working with students and so on, I'm, I'm standing up there and everything that I'm wearing, I know exactly... Where it's come from, it's all organic materials or organic cotton, natural fibers, my skin breeze, I feel good about it. I know the companies that I bought from, you know, like, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm allowed to list some of them. But yeah, do you know what, that actually,
1: that- Mark, that would actually be really useful because I think that transparency, whether it is, you know, ethical, you know, working conditions or fair pay or indeed looking at the materials, I'd love to hear some of your recommendations if you wouldn't mind sharing.
5: Yeah, sure. It's early morning here in Mm -hmm. London, and I am wearing a hoodie from Weird Fish, a company called Weird Fish, a shirt from Patagonia, Mm -hmm. um, and shoes from Geese, Geese Line. And these are all companies, most of them relatively small companies in comparison to, you know, much larger ones like Adidas or whoever. Um, but but they have a strong ethical policy, not just in terms of the sourcing of their materials and the recycling of their materials, but the way they treat the staff, um, how the companies are formed, and, you know, so when I actually wear those clothes, it's not just that um, you know I feel good about the, the companies that I'm supporting in, 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 in buying them, but I feel good of the choices that I've made, and this is something, um, Helen. I think is really crucial in this, and particularly for parents with with children, is they they often feel um, disempowered mm-hmm. because it's so doom and gloom. And then they read the science, and then they get more anxious. And then, if you're living in somewhere like you know Delhi or Beijing or even <clears throat> central London, you're you're seeing the the atmospheric pollution, but there are choices that we can make. And, you know, when I do a full workshop, there are actually so many more choices than, than meet the eye that you can make. And, and clothes is, is kind of a good example because the fast fashion industry um, is, <laughs> is, is such a polluting industry. Mm-hmm. And therefore those choices and the more people making those choices, it does change. It shifts the whole paradigm of, of how we're living and this insatiable need to to consume and do everything in such a fast way that we stop thinking about why we're doing it. And so that's really
1: the answer to that one. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Balabon with us, philosopher, environmentalist and author. Back with him next about where this passion began for him. we conversation now with Mark Balabon, philosopher, environmentalist, author, coming to the UAE to speak to schools and a really, really passionate on the topic, of course, very relevant with COP28 coming up. And so, Mark, can I ask where this began for you? We know, we know a little bit about your inspiration for exploring this theme of environment. Tell us about your work.
5: Probably when, well, actually, in writing Home, um, it's my first young adult book. And uh, so I went back to my roots, and all, all this began when I was about eight years old, and my parents. We lived in a tiny council house in Swiss Cottage, mm-hmm. and we had a tiny little garden. And my parents gave me this little strip, um, you know, uh, that and and a few seeds. And I, I just put some seeds in there, a nasturtium plant, and I used to rush home from school, you know, every day just. Seeing And then eventually when those green shoots appeared, it was amazing. Um, and now I, here I am a few years later <laughs> <laughs> in, in my office, which I call the garden room. Um, and it's absolutely surrounded by plants. And I give to them. You know, I look after them, nurture them and so on, um, whether it's vegetables or a cactus or something like that. And they give to me. And mm-hmm. it's, it's building that relationship um with the planet rather than talking about the planet like it's a commodity. But it's building those connections again with this planet because um as, as Leah in the book says, in Home says, um if we treated, you know, the planet like our home, we'd want to protect her. Um and if we don't protect her, we won't have a home.
1: Yeah. Up well, well said. So let's make it Let's bring it to Dubai. You know, we've got COP28, of course, and you're having some school visits here in the UAE. Would you mind giving us a bit of a glimpse into some of the practical strategies, the advice that, you know, families listening today can um, can implement, can adjust, can try, can change when addressing some climate-related concerns together?
5: Yeah, I'm so happy to be invited to all these amazing international schools in, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi as well and um, most of the schools have asked for a workshop on climate positive so um the, the the workshop really is about how to think about well firstly there's there's a lot on um understanding how the climate actually works just simple things like weather the difference between weather and climate but then using that example um i take it inside the person so it's like today, Helen, you might have the the weather in you today might be you know very bright and happy, and tomorrow it's a bit sad about something, but the climate in you is the long your long term behavioral patterns. what kind of a person are you mm-hmm. um and so, as a philosopher, I go enough into that without getting too complicated and intellectual to. To show that you can there 's qualities that you can grow in yourself that make a huge difference to your outlook, your whole perspective on life, and one of them with young people is confidence mm-hmm. so in in leah 's story um, she 's a very not confident girl when her story starts, and she takes a bold step to go to an international summer camp and because she puts herself outside of her comfort zone. Um, and gets into quite a few conflicts. But she starts to discover more about her true nature and the kind of things that she wants to grow in herself. And one of them is a natural confidence, which you'll see in the story how how she does that. Um, so when I'm going to schools particularly, it's it's taking people inside themselves first because one of the sadnesses for me is to see... You know, millions of young people investing a huge amount in activism, as I have done too, um, fighting against things uh, and governments and so on and so forth, which has largely not resulted in in any of the things that they've aspired to, particularly a reduction in greenhouse gases, for example, Mm -hmm. and actually trying to have a different kind of inclusive activism where actually instead of fighting against things you're fighting for things so and you become the living example of that
0: oh
1: that's that is exactly what i was hoping you would say in terms of people listening today feeling uplifted i guess because it's very easy to feel defeated really um can i ask then and we're running out of time unfortunately mark looking ahead Oh no! i know i know I know, yeah. but, but but we urge you everyone of course to find out more about you and read the books and get an understanding of what it's all about. But coming back to home in particular, you know, how do you envisage the the impact of your books on readers and families? What conversations do you hope that they'll inspire? And I guess the bigger question about your legacy as a philosopher, environmentalist and a writer?
5: Yeah, well it, it it's a big question because um I think for anyone who's Say, leading or teaching, or so on, you know, you have to be very careful. You don't want to be moralizing. You don't want to be didactic. You don't want to be prescriptive. You, you, you know, so you have to stand in front of that group of people. And either you are the authentic living example of everything you're trying to offer to people, or you're trying to get them to change. And I don't believe in that. I think that, you know, by. By being a living example and the story of home is really the story of, of, you know, a young person who's facing some of these issues and not just um, the climate, but, you know, bullying and body image issues and uh, conflict. And these are all of the things to do with the climate that we have in modern societies, particularly in the global north. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's trying to take a holistic approach by that. But the the starting off of the holistic approach has always got to begin at home, and the first place of home is actually in yourself. And when you feel well at home in yourself, your whole outlook on life starts to change, and the people then around you, um, your relationships start to, to um, change. Because, as, as I say in one article that got published a while ago, every single relationship that you build in your life depends on your relationship with yourself mm-hmm. and that also applies to your relationship with the planet
1: I think that's the perfect note to end on I hopefully given lots of people some food for thought on exactly that looking looking inward so we can help outward um, Mark Balabon for anyone that wants to find your books, find out more about your work, is there a website a resource we could point people in the direction of?
5: Yes, absolutely well Bookworm Children's uh, Bookshop in Dubai have done a great job in both stocking the book and promoting the book. And so they'll be with me during the tour. Uh, Obviously, the book is available on all all the websites and so on. My own website is uh, is called Bookmark Perfect. That's the uh, play on the word Bookmark, but (laughs) Bookmark Balaban. And, you know, I I do have a Twitter and Instagram. So thank you. Yes,
1: that's really kind. As I said, Bookworm... um one of my favourite shops I'm in there most most days with my children it's just around the corner and I've seen it in the window I've seen it on the counter Home My Life in the Universe is out now and uh, fantastic to have you here in the UAE ahead of COP28 Mark thank you so much for your time
5: thank you so much Alan. a pleasure to speak
1: Delighted to introduce you now to Kai Simmons. She is a mindset and well-being coach. She's worked as a motivational speaker with big companies, with individuals as well. And we're talking today about limiting beliefs. So have a little, a little check in with yourself over the next few minutes. We're going to be talking about some of the things that you might have heard from other people or the stories you tell yourselves that could be holding you back. Kai, it's so nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Good, I'm excited to be here. You help people in all sorts of different ways. And I think getting to the root of why our confidence might be low, some of of the stories we tell ourselves is such a key one. We are going to be talking about some other topics in the coming months as well. But I wanted to start with this with you, because this idea of limiting beliefs is something I'm really conscious of as a parent, the messages I'm telling my children. But for people who are unfamiliar with the concept, can you tell us a little bit about what limiting beliefs are and how you believe they can impact someone's mindset and overall well-being as well.
3: Yeah, um, so a limiting belief is kind of like a story you tell yourself about something that you believe to be true, but isn't actually maybe a hundred percent true. So one of the things that I work on, and the reason I got into this, is because of my own limiting beliefs, burnout, and anxiety, and all of these things um, came from a lack of self-love, which came very much down to the belief that I'm not good enough, and that in order for me to be worthy of love. I needed to be perfect. So it's kind of a big, big journey that you go on. But when you get down to the limiting belief, at least for myself and my clients, that's when we start to see the transformations because
1: we start to switch those beliefs because we realize they're just stories that we tell ourselves. That's a really big one. I'm not good enough. And I think an awful lot of therapists and coaches would say probably a a substantial number of people who sit in their room will have that and some of the problems might stem from that belief of I'm not good enough. It can also be, and I don't want to say trivial, but it can also be more kind of day to day. And the example when I think about limiting beliefs is I'm not sporty. I'm not a sporty person. And it became a real challenge for me to overcome that in adulthood to say that I might not have been the best athlete in high school, but that doesn't mean that I can't enjoy movement and exercise as an adult. Does that make sense? But I had to really try yeah, absolutely.
3: And I think that's that's part of it is like you take the story and you kind of transform it. So you create a stretch belief, which is what you were starting to do or a thought ladder, which is like, I'm not sporty to um, maybe I wasn't the best at this sports, but I still like to enjoy and moving my body. Mm-hmm. So you create a new story in your, in your mind by stretching that belief or creating a thought ladder.
1: I, I want to ask you, Kai, because I think a lot of people might not be fully aware of what their limiting beliefs are. So how do you help people identify them, become conscious of the thoughts that might be holding them back.
3: Yeah. So a lot of the beginning work that I do with people is just talking. There's a lot of talking and I ask very broad questions. And it's really interesting as as you know someone who is trained to do this, I can I can pinpoint and it's like these little comments that they say about themselves that, you know, from a third eye or from an external point of view, I can catch like in a second. Not just me. I'm just like, speaking of like coaches and therapists. But because you know you're with yourself all day, you're it's hard for you to differentiate what's this and what that What's that? But another great tool is journaling. When you're journaling, I think that's a great self-awareness tool. You can then go back and read your thoughts and then you'll find like specific patterns that you're like, wow, I keep saying these things about myself.
1: Would you mind giving some other examples that might have come up with clients and that could be individuals or companies that maybe might raise some, some, you know, thoughts with people listening today.
3: Yeah, I think uh, maybe it was a week ago I had a session with a client and I was telling her, you know, you can share more on like LinkedIn or Instagram about who you are and and your story um, to get more clients. Right. And she was saying, no, I can't post on on social media because there are important people that follow me and I, I can't make a fool of myself. So then that was that little comment made me realize, oh, so she has this fear of being seen, like maybe she thinks she's not smart enough. So then that's where I started to come in with the questions of like, what, what, why would you make a fool of yourself? What was a fool of yourself look like? And then from there, you kind of tease out what the limiting belief is. And again, I'll do that. A coach will do that. Therapist will do that. But also with journaling. That's another. I love journaling for myself and also for my clients. But that's an example I just very recently
1: heard. So. Once someone does recognise it, and I'm sure a lot of people listening today, I mean, everything from, you know, I'm, I can't sing to um, I'm, I'm not, as you say, smart enough, or I couldn't be a success in that field or whatever that might be. And everyone has, our, you know, we've all got our hang ups. Once that's been recognised, Kai, what strategies and techniques do you find effective for helping people overcome these obstacles and create a more positive mindset?
3: I have so, so many, but I'll just give you my <laughs> favorites because what I like to do is I like to create little toolboxes and and it's like, there's all these different tools, but
1: I always tell my clients, pick the one that works best for you. Because some of them, I've got to be honest, I find affirmations a total cringe, but some people love them. And if you find it uncomfortable, you're not going to do it. Yeah, it has to resonate with you because you can't, you can't trick yourself. Okay, <laughs> Let's get
3: into the toolkit. What's in there? So one of my favorite things is um once you've identified the limiting beliefs, um, I like to connect that. It's. I say that it's not me saying it, it's my inner critic. So the limiting belief will come up of like, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I start to create an inner critic or a character and that already disassociates myself from it. Mm -hmm. So then once you identify your inner critic, you name it. And this is my favorite part because the names that my clients come up for their own inner critics, that's the—that's how you make it more personalized and it, it, it's more effective. Mine is boring. She's called the Punisher.
1: Oh, <laughs> like, really? Yeah. So uh, Mo Gowdad, who wrote The Happiness Solution, he calls his Becky.
3: Ah, there, there you, you go. go. <laughs> hey, I, we don't know why, like, you know, and you don't have to. But when the voice comes up and then you're like, oh, okay, this is the Punisher. And instead of letting it consume you, You can listen, you can write down what it says. But that awareness and practicing, oh, this is not me, this is the voice in my head, is the first step. Mm -hmm. And it takes at least, this isn't like, okay, step one, step two, step three. This is at least like every single day you need to be doing this for at least weeks. And I know that this is really hard. And a lot of people in the beginning, they give up because it's hard. But that's why you have people to help you through this. It's Mm -hmm. just the beginning that you need help. And once you get through that
1: and it becomes a habit or routine, you don't need as much support anymore kai that any resources books um obviously you're more than welcome to share your own website if that would be useful for anyone that is you know feeling a little bit oh interesting this is something i want to investigate yeah well like you said sulfur happy that's actually one of my
3: favorites um there's another one you are <laughs> um that's a, a like i recommend that all to to my clients um Jennifer Cheryl, that's the author. And then another one is, um, just, there's a book on burnout. Yeah, I think it's like, I'll have to get back to you. I'll, maybe I'll send that to you later. Send but it. that there's another book on burnout where it's just because I have so many burnout books in my
1: head. So I can't remember specific well, We are going to be talking about burnout in January, about putting some good routines, boundaries, habits in place. In the meantime, though, for anyone that does want to reach out for you, what's the best way of finding you online? Kai?
3: Anywhere, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, just Google Kai Simmons,
1: K-A-I-S-I-M-M-O-N-D-S, and you'll find my website, my Instagram or my LinkedIn. There you go. And this is for companies and individuals. Tell you what, I'll make it even easier if you send me the word mind I will send you those links so you can find out more and we can help you smash those limiting beliefs because trust me an awful what you tell yourself is absolutely untrue. Kai thank you so much for coming in we'll chat for longer next time but I really appreciate your time and I think a lot of people connected with what you're saying there so hugely hugely helpful. Thank Thank you. you. We're talking men's health this hour because it is of course the month of November. I've seen many an attractive mo around town, some fantastic face furniture raising money and awareness for a great cause and joining us live on the line to answer my question but most importantly yours is Dr Omar Durwish, Consultant Neurology at Faki University Hospital. Fantastic to have you joining us. I know you're very busy there at Faki University so I really do appreciate your time. We are talking men's health this hour and I guess what I kind of want to get a, an idea of is what do we mean when we're talking about men's health? What comes under that category f- for you as as a, as a doctor? Uh,
4: first of all, good afternoon to everybody, and thanks for giving me this opportunity. There are many definitions. There are many definitions for men's health, but the one I pick is that it's a it's a, a state of complete mental, physical, and social health experienced by a man, uh, and it's not merely just being free of disease. And we know there are, there are differences between men's and women's health uh, for many, many reasons, uh, including biological factors, behavioral factors and social factors. For example, uh, men uh, are uh, less likely to um, seek medical advice if they have symptoms, for example. They are more likely to engage in uh, risky behaviour like uh, smoking and risky sports, for example. So these uh, factors are taken into consideration. And that's the reason why in this month of November, we are focusing in men's health and in uh, health education for men in general.
1: Thank you for acknowledging something that I always joke to my husband about. Never going to the doctor. And it feels like a bit of a stereotype. But why do you think that's true?
4: Well, men uh, try to persevere and show strength and endurance, and hence they don't uh, express their feelings and they don't seek advice uh, because of that. Uh, in addition, there are, of course, hormonal uh, differences and social differences, and uh, because of that, we try and hide our feelings and try not to express them. Uh, but this is not a healthy uh, behaviour. So we need to try and educate our men, uh, our uh, colleagues and friends and family members that they need to seek advice if there is a necessity, of course.
1: I'm really glad you mentioned mental health there because we think of things, mental and physical health being very separate, but the more research that is done seems to think and prove just how intertwined they are. And we've spoken an awful lot on the show recently around loneliness around showing vulnerability reaching out and there are some fantastic men's groups in the men's communities that have started here um looking at, at doing just that so thank you for for making that part of the conversation up next we are going to be talking about neurological diseases as we are joined by dr Omar Doesh, consultant in neurology at Faki university hospital
0: this content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment
1: Live on the line from Farki University Hospital, we've got consultant urologist Dr Omar doish We're going to be talking men's health and so many questions coming in on this topic. We can do as Gary has done and pick up the phone. How are you this afternoon? I'm good, thanks. And yourself? Yeah, really well, thank you. How can, I say we, not me, how can Dr Omar help <laughs> you this afternoon?
5: Dr Omar, it's, it's uh, thanks for, for, for uh, answering questions for us men. Uh, just uh, the question that I have is, uh, I've got a history of prostate cancer in the family. Um, in a case, of, like my grandfather died of it, uh, my father had it. Uh, in a case like this, should I do more regular tests or just, should I just go for the annual check?
1: Great question. So family history there, Dr. Omar, in uh, in Gary's family. Father had it. Grandfather sadly passed away of prostate cancer. Would you mind just advising everyone today for for gents listening how often that prostate should be checked and from what age? And if there is a family history, do you need to be more vigilant?
4: Uh, Thank you for the question, sir. Um, First of all, we know that prostate cancer has become now a very important topic because it became the most commonly diagnosed cancer in Europe and the US among uh, old men. And there are risk factors associated with increased um, chance of having prostate cancer, mainly age as we get older. The average age at diagnosis is about 69. Uh, The other risk factor is, of course, family history. As you correctly said, if you have a first degree relative like father or brother who has prostate cancer, then you need to have it checked early. Uh, We start screening at the age of 40. Uh, For general population, we advise to start Checking the prostate at the age of 50. Uh, certain ethnic groups, like people from African descent, should, should start screening early at the age of 40. And it's very simple. You go and see your doctor, you give the, your medical history, and we check a blood test, and we do physical examination to the prostate, in addition to certain imaging modalities that we sometimes ask for in case we are questioning the possibility of the diagnosis.
1: So, not to ask Gary a too personal question, how old are you, sir? <laughs> uh,
4: I'm 47 at the moment.
1: So, 47. So, would you advise annual checks for Gary, given the family history, or even more regularly? What would you like to see?
4: Uh, I think it depends on his first check. Uh, so, we always try and use some risk factors or risk stratification to see how often we need to do the uh, screening or the checkup. But the first one is very important. And if it is negative and nothing to worry about, then we advise for a yearly checkup.
1: Gary, does that help?
5: Great. Thank you so much.
1: And I will send you doctor's details. Good luck and stay well, okay?
5: Excellent. Thank you. Cheers,
1: Gary. Appreciate it. Um, Can I ask then, um, what's keeping you busy, Dr. Omar? What are some of the common urological diseases that you're seeing in men?
4: Uh, Thanks for the question. Uh, We... uh, just to uh, inform everybody that we deal with urological disease in both genders. So. But in men, we have a um, large proportion of our patients are men because they have higher risk of certain diseases. Interestingly, for example, men have two times higher risk of having kidney stones, um, two times higher risk uh, compared to women. Uh, two times higher risk of having uh, uh, kidney cancer, for example, and even three times higher risk of having bladder uh, cancer. So that's the reason why we advise men to seek advice if they have uh, symptoms. In addition to this, we deal with the genital or genital tract disease and infertility, which contributes in um, about 40% of uh, Couples who have uh, issue with fertility, uh, men's factor can be the uh, contributing factor to this. So we deal with that uh, aspect as well.
1: So just to open the text line up, because we've had a number of messages, one asking about exactly that, about sperm count and infertility, had message about HPV for teenage boys. Are we OK to address all of those topics on the show this afternoon, Doctor? yes of course okay brilliant really appreciate it. as i said text lines are open can we come back to the prostate gary they're asking about prostate cancer and risk factors can you explain a little bit more about this gland and why we need to know more about it
4: well prostate is actually part of the reproductive system it's a gland but closely related to the urinary system because it lies at the base uh, under the uh, base of the bladder and the urinary passage passes through the prostate. That's the reason why a lot of the symptoms related to prostate enlargement is related to the urinary tract or the lower urinary tract, leading to what we call lower urinary tract symptoms. The gland itself contributes to the fluid uh, that uh, forms the semen. Uh, And uh, as we get older, it gets bigger in majority of men but not necessarily leads to symptoms. Mm-hmm. But the other issue, as I mentioned, is the prostate cancer. And the, the um, unique feature of prostate cancer is that it's in early stages, it can be completely asymptomatic, or it can give symptoms re- uh, uh, similar to what the one that is related to benign prostatic enlargement, which is age-related, and it is completely different pathology. So prostate cancer, is completely different from benign prostatic enlargement. And some men are uh, actually scared to uh, seek medical advice Mm -hmm. uh, if they have symptoms, uh, fearing from the diagnosed prostate cancer. But it's really important to know if you have the disease because the earlier you detect it, you have the better chance of curing it. So there is a curative treatment that we can offer that will just get rid of the disease completely and let you live your life with normal life expectancy.
1: So highly treatable, but you've got to have that knowledge. You've got to go in and get those checks. Um, you mentioned there about how there can be no symptoms at all. Are there any symptoms that you think are worth flagging just for everyone's general knowledge around the potentials of prostate cancer, Dr. Omar? Uh,
4: luckily, uh, prostate cancer in majority of cases grows slowly and maybe it will just Uh, grow and progress without causing any harm. But uh, if there are symptoms uh, related directly to prostate cancer, maybe this is an indication of the uh, disease being in advanced stage, like having blood in the urine, difficulty holding urine or uh, problem with bowel control, Mm -hmm. and in some cases maybe some uh, bone pain like in the hips or the back or the chest, or losing weight. Uh, these are symptoms related to advanced disease and luckily we don't see them too often these days because we have uh, a great advances in early detection and uh, diagnosis prostate cancer. So we see less cases of advanced prostate cancer. Good.
1: Dr. Omar, we're going to keep you with us if you don't mind. I'm sealing you away from a very busy clinic at Faki University Hospital because we've had a number of messages that I want to help people out with. Stella's asking, what do you think about the HPV for teenage boys? Anonymous message here saying, my dad's had elevated prostate results and had a consultation. They've organised an MRI for him in two days, which seems urgent. Do you think this might be might mean they're worried? And great question here from a wife saying, my husband's got a urology appointment tomorrow following a low sperm count SA. I don't know what an SA but you can explain that for me in a minute.
0: This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.
1: Joining us to Mark Movember and talking men's health this hour is Dr. Omar Doish, consultant in urology at Faki University Hospital. We've had a number of messages. Dr. Omar, how do you feel about a little quickfire round on the text line, sir? Yes. Right. A message here from Stella saying, what do you think about the HPV for teenage boys? I presume it's about the vaccine. Um, Can you explain a little bit briefly, if you don't mind, about what HPV is and if teenage boys should indeed be getting that vaccine?
4: Uh, Thanks for the question. HPV stands for human papillomavirus. It's a sexually transmitted disease, but it can be transmitted through other ways as well. There are at least fifty strains, different strains of the virus, but some of them are very important related to the women's health, particularly because they increase the risk of having precancerous cells in the cervix, and this leads to cervical cancer and hence it's important to consider vaccination. And uh, in, I think, uh, majority of European countries and the UK, they advise to have the vaccine at the teenage uh, period to try and reduce the risk of catching this infection, and hence reduce the incidence of cervical cancer. For, for, for men, the risk is really small. They can cause what we call genital warts, and in very rare occasions, they can also lead to uh, what we call uh, benign cancer. But the main risk is for women. So that's the reason why we need to consider v- a vaccination of teenagers mm-hmm. to reduce the risk of the uh, cancer in women.
1: Thank you for that. Appreciate that. Um, we've also had a message, an anonymous message here saying, um, "Thank you both. My dad had elevated prostate results and had a consultation earlier this week. They've organised an MRI for him on Thursday, which seems very urgent to me. Do you think this means they're worried? You can't possibly say this without this being your patient and, of course, knowing the numbers and, and what's been seen. But in terms of, if you wouldn't mind speaking to the process when it comes to um, looking for." and indeed um, a diagnosing prostate cancer. Dr. Omar, would you mind explaining?
4: Yeah, first of all, I always say to my patients that diagnosis is actually 50% of the treatment. If you don't have the correct diagnosis, then you might not be able to offer the right the treatment. So, I can assure the uh, patient and his family that they are in the stage of diagnosis, not to worry, and the process might take some time. But the uh, process of pro- uh, diagnosing prostate cancer starts from the clinical assessment, taking history, examining the patient, and then relying on the PSA. PSA stands for prostate specific antigen and it's a protein secreted by the prostate in very small concentration in normal situation. But if there is a disease in the prostate, this goes up uh, to a higher levels and we have threshold that we compare with and in this scenario we need to uh, do further investigation to check if there's a cancer or not. There are other causes. So we uh, say that PSA is organ-specific, secreted by prostate, but it's not disease-specific because it can be raised due to other diseases like benign prosthetic enlargement, infection and urinary tract infection, and sometimes even examining the prostate itself can raise the PSA. So if we have high PSA, then we need to consider other Uh, aspects like the patient age, their general health, and if there's any other possible causes for raised PSA. The first thing we do in terms of investigation, we do initial ultrasound scan and physical examination. And in some occasions, when we do risk specification, we proceed to MRI, which is magnetic resonance imaging. And with the recent advances in this technology we can sometimes even decide of if the patient needs more investigation. Sometimes we do the MRI and we say to the patient considering his PSA and other aspects that maybe you don't need anything else just mm-hmm. monitoring. But the definitive diagnosis of prostate cancer is taking biopsy from the prostate and this will be decided within the context of the other investigations the MRI, the patient himself, and we always involve the patient in the decision making because proceeding with biopsy will have its own implication. But I can also assure the, um, uh, the 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 patient that there is only one in three chance that the biopsy will show cancer and maybe the patient will need uh, further uh, treatment steps.
1: Doctor Omar, thank you so much for speaking so clearly um, on something that I think a lot of people have got a lot of fear and a lot of confusion about so Really appreciate your time this afternoon. With your permission, if people send me the word doctor, would it be okay to send your profile there on the Farquhar University Hospital website so people can reach out individually? Would that be okay? Yes, of thank course. you. Thank really you. appreciate Talking men's health uh, consultant urologist, Dr. Omar Doash.
0: This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.